Good morning and welcome to Zoom with Zarni. Today is Sunday, January 10th, and I'm very pleased to bring to you this interview today. I think it's one of the best we've done. It's again with uh, my uh, good friend Thomas Keck, uh, SU professor and expert on Supreme Court and expansion. Um, we had him booked today because we were going to talk about the Georgia Senate races and the um, the outcome of them and what the implications were for the Supreme Court of the United States. However, um, and we do talk about that. However, uh, we cannot ignore the tragic and unsettling events of January 6th, uh, the insurrection that was staged and uh, encouraged by the President of the United States on our Capitol while the electoral votes were being counted. Um, and uh, accepted by the uh, Congress of the United States. This was a uh, ridiculous, futile, and destructive event. And it is not something that uh, we can shy away from. Um, the president, in my opinion, needs to be impeached. Uh, he needs to be impeached because uh, this uh, insurrection was caused by him and egged on by him, and each day we're finding out more news uh, that, uh, of, uh, that, uh, of, that this was planned, that this was uh, encouraged, that at least the march to the Capitol was encouraged, and there was such silence and, uh, while the destruction was going on. Um, so we need, a, uh, we need an answer that this is not acceptable, and uh, President Trump is a danger to our country. He has been for four years, but more so now in the, la in the last few days. And, it, and while even though uh, the Senate may not act because Senator McConnell, uh, soon to be Minority Leader McConnell, um, uh, refuses to bring the Senate back into session, uh, this is uh, something that could still be acted on after they come back, even after Donald Trump leaves office, because we need to make sure that he can never run for office again. And he's been deplatformed by uh, the major tech companies because he continued to encourage insurrection and violence. And uh, in uh, either January 17th is a day that people have said that uh, there's going to be more action, or January 20th, the inauguration of uh, the next president, Joe Biden. And so this is a clear and present danger to our democracy and needs to be addressed. Um, and I believe we will see uh, in the House this week articles of impeachment. And Professor Keck and I talk about that in great detail, so I'm not going to do that right here. Uh, you'll see that in the interview. Uh, this week at the Board of Elections, um, we have moved on to a uh, three people home, two people, or I'm sorry, three days home, two days uh, in the office for our office staff. Um, while the Board of Elections will be open 8.30 to 4.30 every day uh, because of this, the spread of the virus and COVID-19 and being at uh, some of the highest levels that we've seen even since March, uh, we are uh, trying to limit the risk to our staff uh, and having them uh, work from home on many of the things the next couple months. We have a lot of stuff we have to do, but um, a lot of it can be done. We invested in some technology uh, with some grants that we got this last year to give the boards of elections the ability to work from home. So 
Uh, we're hopeful that that will be done. Uh, and uh, you know, we're going to. So, if you're looking for one of the staff uh, in particular, uh, and you want to come in in person, you may want to email them to make sure what days they're in. Personally, I'll be physically in the office Mondays and Fridays, uh, but either uh, my deputy Julie Cook or Secretary Allison Wright will be in the other days. Uh, so, uh, you know, those days uh, they that uh, they'll be in the office. Um, uh, you know, then you the, there's you can get pretty much anything uh, you need from us, and of course. Um, there will always be somebody in the office uh, to help you with whatever you need. So, uh, but if you email, it's probably better um, and calling, of course, calling ahead uh, over the next few months as we go into this dark winter and fight this virus uh, and protect our staff. Um, the big news is that in the New York State Legislature this week is the start of session. That means Democracy Day for all of our um, uh, you know, for, for the legislature that usually in the first week they pass sweeping uh, democracy reforms. And we're going to see that uh, in the Senate. We know that uh, the New York State Senate uh, will be passing eight bills on Monday, uh, mostly to do with absentee ballot counting and moving that before Election Day, uh, making it more better use for uh, the, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, making it better for the voters having ballot trackers. These are all really, really good bills, and I hope uh, uh, they all get passed in the assembly as well. Uh, and also the constitutional amendment for uh, no fault, uh, no excuse after these, and also uh, uh, same day registration is also gonna be passed on Tuesday. Uh, and those will be before the voters uh, this year. So these are great uh, changes that are coming to you from the expanded Democratic caucus in the Senate. And uh, hopefully the expanded Democratic caucus in the assembly will follow up on those either next week or very shortly thereafter. And finally, um, I do need to talk about the things that are happening in New York 22. Uh, yesterday um, and Friday, we received notice that, uh, that the Oneida County Board of Elections did not process about 75% of their DMV registrations that came into the office. Uh, between September 24th and October 9th. This is a disturbing and um, unsettling uh, development in this. It means that there's at least 63 affidavit ballots that didn't get counted uh, that may the judge may decide to count. Also, we just don't know how many of these people showed up at the polls on election day and decided not to vote because they weren't registered. About 2,200 people didn't have their registration forms properly done. Not all of them are new registrations. Some of them could have been moved. Probably the majority of them are could have been moved. Uh, that being said, this I want to make sure people understand that this is not something that normally happens. This is actually something that doesn't happen at all uh, in, in most boards of elections. I've, you know, as a caucus chair of the board of elections, we exchange stories and we know that all of the registrations processed before or that is received by the Board of Elections before the cutoff needs to be processed before early voting. In fact, we work 12 hour days to do so. We spread out the work. We hire extra staff if needed. Um, <clears throat> this is part of the mandate of our job and it is um, disturbing that a decision was made uh, there. The commissioners did not testify on Friday um, of why they made that decision. Um, 
and uh, it's going to be, I, I, I imagine that this is going to be a lot of discussion uh, along with the uh, you know, Board of Elections reform. Um, and uh, that, you know, that could take many shapes, but this has nothing to do with the political appointments of boards of elections. It has to do with the decisions of the United County Board. Um, later today, I'm gonna to be releasing a letter to the editor that uh, uh, my uh, caucus, uh, the Republican caucus chair, Eric Height in Dutchess County and myself wrote. Uh, we've released this to several different outlets across the state and I'll be putting it on my Tumblr blog and of course sharing it on my social medias, uh, which kind of outline the challenges that the Board of Elections have had to face and where we can be uh, get help to be better. I, I, I know there's going to be a lot of discussion about political appointments, but it's not about political appointments. It's about the resources that we give these Boards of Elections uh, to get the job done. We are working overtimes. We're, we're, we're working extra staff because we have, are at the lowest staffing levels that we've ever been in Onondaga County, and uh, but yet with the most, uh, you know, burden on us. And we're not the only ones. In fact, almost every other county, uh, you know, has uh, these budget uh, issues that are come from their county legislatures and no help from the state government. And last year we were able to get grant funding to help. Uh, um, you know, service to voters, but the, that grant funding may come now that we have a Democratic Senate and, uh, and, and Congress and President, we may see some funding uh, in, in the next year or so, especially to start replacing some of our aging uh, voter registration, uh, uh, or I'm not voter registration, aging uh, voter uh, scanning uh, fleet um, of machines, but uh, it, it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, uh, that is definitely going to come. So we need to we need to reinvest in our boards of elections and give them the tools they need. Change these antique and Byzantine uh, election laws to make things more efficient at the boards, and and then also hold accountable the people that um, don't get that done for whatever reason. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm looking to learn more about why this all happened as well. I'm not part of New York 22, I'm just an observer. Um, however, being in the big county in the major media market that covers that, uh, I do get asked about it quite a bit by the press. And I try to give as much, an informed opinion, although not an inside opinion, because boards of elections that kind of act as insular shells on their own. So, um, and this is the only board in that uh, New York 22 race that seems to have reported this type of issue. So. Um, it's going to be something that we need to follow up on. So uh, without further ado, I want to bring to you my guest, Tom Keck, SU professor uh, and uh, expert on uh, political science and constitutional law. And uh, I'm happy to have him on again. Thank you. Bye-bye. And I'm back. Uh, I'm really happy that this week of all weeks, I had scheduled uh, one of my favorite guests and one of the best, uh, most knowledgeable people that I know uh, when it comes to the United States government and uh, the Supreme Court of the United States and a lot of uh, things that I think are very relevant today. And that is uh, uh, Professor uh, Thomas Keck of Syracuse University, also uh, a, a governing member of the CNY Solidarity Coalition, 
Uh, Tom, thank you so much for making time to come back on Zoom with Zarni. Glad to be here. So we've had a heck of a week, Tom. <laughs> um, Indeed. And, uh, uh, you know, when we scheduled this interview, we thought we were going to be talking about the Georgia elections, uh, what it, you know, we scheduled it before we knew what the uh, outcome was, and we, we were going to talk about the Georgia elections and what it meant for the Supreme Court uh, and judges in general. Uh, but um, we can't ignore the elephant in the room uh, and what happened on, you know, it, it, you know, yes, what happened on Tuesday is something we're going to talk about as well, but what happened on Wednesday is um, scary and uh, just something that uh, we've never seen really in our, in our country, although we've seen it in third world countries. So I just kind of want to open with your thoughts, uh, reflections on where we are as a democracy based on what happened on Wednesday. Sure. So uh, it's scary for sure, right? So the president of the United States uh, incited a mob to march on the U.S. Capitol while Congress was in session in the middle of counting the electoral votes to determine that Donald Trump himself had lost his bid for re-election. Um, he has been uh, calling the election results into question on a daily basis, right, since November 3rd and even before November 3rd. He, he uh, said over and over again that he would not respect the results if he lost. Um, he has for weeks been calling for his supporters to come to DC on January 6th. Um, he, uh, he spoke to them uh, that morning on the ellipse outside the White House um, and urged them to march to the Capitol. Uh, and then as we've all seen on the footage, right, a violent mob uh, forced its way into the Capitol and um, uh, uh, physically uh, threatened uh, law enforcement, members of Congress, their staffs, um, uh, media, um, multiple people have been injured, and of course, several people have died, including one Capitol Police officer. Um, so it, it's a truly outrageous and terrifying assault on the like, one of the central institutions of our democratic government. And, um, and the combination of that, right, so the mob violence is terrifying in one respect, but then meanwhile, what was going on in the Congress is terrifying in a different respect, which is that ha more than half of Republican members of the House, even after the mob violence threatening their own lives, uh, voted with no basis whatsoever to throw out the electoral votes of, of Arizona and Georgia, right? Um, and so, I mean, Arizona and Pennsylvania, sorry. Um, and so the combination of those two things is really quite striking. And so we now see House Democrats um, pledging to move forward quickly with an impeachment resolution. Right. And yet, even, even though they are pledging to move forward, and we see that happening on Monday, um, and there's a lot of discussion about whether impeachment can be done before January 20th. Um, when Biden will take office and he will be the next president of the United States. I think it's important to keep telling everyone that this will happen. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I, uh, you know, immediately 
uh, you know, the day after said we have to impeach Trump now is not so much for the action of, of uh, um, removal, but this, you know, I, I was hoping that Mike Pence and the cabinet would come to their senses and remove this man from office uh, using the 25th Amendment, but that doesn't seem to be happening. In fact, several cabinet members have resigned, probably so they wouldn't have to vote on this, not because their conscience finally got to them after kids in cages and, uh, you know, uh, you, <laughs> cozying up to white supremacy and all of this. So now, now, they, now they finally cross the line, but also conveniently, they don't have to uh, actually uh, vote on um, a 25th Amendment if it was put forward. But can impeachment be done? Can it be done in a way that is quick and removal done if there's enough compliant parties to do? And I know the if is the big part, right? <laughs> but right. So, so a couple points. So, so first, so there's two. As you know, there's two ways to remove a president um, from his powers. Um, so the 25th Amendment, which was enacted after the Kennedy assassination, was designed to deal with situations where a president is incapacitated. Um, but has not died. And so what do we do? How can somebody else exercise the powers? And so it creates a mechanism by which the vice president and a majority of the cabinet can temporarily remove the powers of the presidency from the president. That, so, so one issue is, though it's less than two weeks, Donald Trump uh, appears to be losing touch with reality in some respects, and, and lots of people um, uh, from his own White House are expressing fears about the kind of damage he could reach in his remaining days in office. So, so in terms of removing him immediately, the 25th Amendment would be the best procedure for doing that if there were the political will on the cabinet to do it, which there does not appear to be, right? Um, so impeachment is not, could not work as swiftly as the 25th Amendment could to remove him immediately. But as you know, the second aspect of this, and here impeachment is better, um, uh, is to prevent him from holding the office again, right? The constitutional text explicitly says, contemplates two punishments for anyone who is uh, impeached and convicted. Um, one is removal from office, the office that they currently hold, and two is barring them from holding future office. And since Trump has openly talked about running for president again in 2024, um, that that provision is really, really crucial, I think. And so in terms of the timing, the House can clearly act in time, right? Um, uh, the impeachment of President Andrew Johnson moved extraordinarily quickly, right? I mean, it had been brewing for months with lots of complaints about his behavior, but he did one last thing that was like the straw that broke the camel's back, and then they impeached him in three days. Um, and so the House is capable of doing that. Um, they can consider impeachment as a so-called privileged revolution, uh, privileged resolution in the House, um, which allows them to set aside all of their business and, and move very quickly to it. And it appears that Democrats have the votes to pass that in the House early this week. Um, the Senate is slower, right? So if the House impeaches the president by a majority vote, it then goes to the Senate for a trial. We just went through this a year ago. Um, and uh, Senate Majority Leader McConnell just yesterday released um, a, a memo to his members sort of outlining the calendar as he understood it. The Senate is currently in recess and absent unanimous consent, right? Absent no objections from any senators. They can't come back prior to January 19th. 
Um, and so McConnell made clear that in his view, the Senate cannot act on it prior to the expiration of Trump's term. Um, I still think Democrats are gonna go forward with it and are right to do so because the, the general scholarly consensus is that as long as an impeachment process starts while somebody is in office, even if they resign or their term ends and are no longer in office, you can still finish the process. In fact, this was done with a cabinet secretary in the 19th century. And so the Senate, which will be under democratic control very soon, could hold a brief trial. And if he were convicted, could bar him from holding future office, right? Now, the if he were convicted is still a big if because a lot of Republicans would have to support that. Um, and so very likely that it is impossible, it, it is not likely for the impeachment procedure to be able to remove Trump from office prior to the conclusion of his term, but it is possible that it can happen pretty quickly and shortly after Biden is sworn in, Trump could be barred from holding future office if some Republicans are persuaded to support it in the Senate. The, the other piece of all this, of course, is that both the 25th Amendment discussions and the impeachment discussions are geared in part to trying to pressure Trump to resign the office, um, which is what happened with Nixon, right? We're, we're about to impeach you, and then he resigns. So there's no signs that Trump is going to do that, but that, that would be another way to get him out of the office sooner. So yeah, <laughs> the fact that McConnell is, I think, pretending that he can't come back because we all know that if there was an attack on America, um, the Senate could come back regardless of unanimous consent. It's been, you know, we've seen uh, issues where where the Senate comes back outside of recess before. Just recently, wasn't didn't they weren't they on recess when they came back for COVID uh, funding? uh just in december I, it wasn't that um I, I i may be misremembering that but i think that they were in recess and, and there was many senators who didn't want to do any COVID funding so you know and i know that there's six senators that continued to go on with the the president's um folly of uh of not trying to count the electoral votes which was ridiculous and uh, you know something unprecedented in our democracy. But going back to, but let's say this all plays out. The, the, the House impeaches um, and we have to wait until uh, Chuck Schumer is the new majority leader because we have to wait till the 22nd for the certification down in Georgia, um, which so and then we need 17 senators to join uh, with Democrats to impeach the pre or to convict the president, um, which I think is going to be hard. Uh, but uh, you know, there's this theory that once he's out of office, maybe some of the the hold that he has on some of these senators might go away. I think it's important just to put them on record anyway. So I, I want to see the vote anyways. But the bar from holding office. Is that a, also a two-thirds vote, or is that a simple majority vote? That, that's a simple majority. They have to convict him first with a two-thirds vote, but then it's a separate vote on that punishment, and it's simple majority on that. So, um, so but they still have to get over the two-thirds hurdle first. Yeah. Would a censure allow for that um, that punishment uh, if we can't get two-thirds vote in the sense that 
in the Senate, but a censure comes out of it instead of a conviction. Could that allow for the bar from office? Um, not, not under the impeachment provisions of the Constitution, but another provision of the Constitution that's been getting some attention this week is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which was, of course, written following the Civil War, and it's a, an effort to prevent um, uh, the, the white Southern traders from, re from holding federal office again, right? And so Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says that anybody who, because of their government office, took an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution and then engaged in insurrection against the US government or aided and abetted insurrection um, is barred from holding future office. And there's no, and that of course famously was not enforced very successfully um, because of obstruction from President Andrew Johnson who pardoned many of the former Confederates in mass. Um, and so there's no, um, there's not a lot of uh, presidential record to go on in terms of how section three of the 14th amendment gets enforced, right? Like for example, if Trump, you know, the single article of impeachment that the house is planning to introduce on, um, on Monday um, accuses the president, right, of inciting uh, uh, insurrection, right, against the democratically elected government in Congress. And so if he is impeached for that in the House, even if not convicted in the Senate, but then maybe censured by the Senate, is that enough to invoke Section 3, right? So even though he's not convicted, would Section 3 of the 14th Amendment still apply? And the short answer is nobody really knows for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, like I think that's like the short answer for a lot of things right now. Okay. We are in such an unprecedented situation, and of course, the next unprecedented situation that we have to face is the pardon uh, issue and the self-pardon issue, uh, as well as you know, we we should talk about whether Trump can pardon himself for his role in Wednesday, but could he pardon in mass on the way out the door every? Um, every protester, or they, we, we can't call them protesters, every insurrectionist that, that stormed our capital and, and you know, rubbed feces on the wall in, in some reports and attacked police, one police officer died, um, you know, had zip ties to take hostages. This was not a protest. This was an attempt at insurrection. But could he pardon all of them on his way out the door? Uh, so yes and no, right? So the president's pardon power is pretty close to unreviewable, right? It's it's quite broad and expansive, um, but he does have to um, do it in a document that takes some legal form, right? It has to list people's names. I mean, at, at least by all historical precedent, it has to list people's names and list their specific crimes or at least like the general category of criminal activity for which they are being pardoned. Um, and so, um, you know, Trump and his staff would have to now be doing the work of identifying and keeping track of all the folks who are being arrested and whose names are being publicly identified and the like. Um, but, but yes, one of the dangers of leaving him in office for these remaining two weeks of his term is that he can massively abuse the pardon power, right? Also, of course, he's contemplating pardons for many of his family members and associates and for himself, as you said. So, um, 
So that is a danger if he remains in office until noon on January 20th. And we've never had a president pardon himself. Just we have not. We, we have not. And, and, and yeah, legal scholars debate whether it's something that would be allowed. So again, we don't know it would how it would stand up. Uh, you know, I mean, one interesting feature of it, which I think he has probably been advised on this, is that um, if a president were to pardon himself and to get away with it, right, it sends a clear message that the president is above the law, right? And so um, you know, the, the other news that happened this week is Biden uh, announced his intention to nominate Merrick Garland for Attorney General of the United States. Um, Merrick Garland, for sure, is not likely to want to allow that message to stand, right, that the president is above the law and can pardon himself. So I, I think it actually increases the odds of Trump being criminally indicted if he attempts to pardon himself, because the only way to test whether the president can indeed pardon himself is to indict him, right, and bring it to court. Um, and so um, I, I think if he pardons himself, I think the Justice Department is more likely to go forward with criminal prosecutions of him. And then the courts would have to decide whether the very concept of a pardon, which there's some evidence for this, right, in English legal history where the concept originates from, right, it, the, con the very concept of it is, a, is an act of mercy by the sovereign towards someone else, right? And, and, the, and it's like almost a, like, oxymoron or a non sequitur or something to, 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 to direct that pardon against yourself, right? You can't, you can't cast grant mercy to yourself. Um, so, um, but nobody knows how the courts would rule on that. But I do think that the Garland Justice Department would want to get that tested and want to push back on it and, and express a very strong view that they, the view of the federal Justice Department is that a president cannot pardon himself. Yeah, and, uh, like we, we talk about what the uh, precedent is, but you know, governors have pardon powers, right? But there's governors have pardon powers. We've had 50 governors at every time in, in United States history. So hundreds and hundreds of more cases where a governor could have pardoned themselves for um, for actions. Um, Rod Blagojevich, I can't say his name. Rod Blagojevich, uh, for example, uh, who was who left office under a corruption probe didn't pardon himself and faced, uh, you know, the music, so to speak, and, and got convicted. Um, and is there any case of a governor acting in such a way either? Or I'm not familiar with any such case, and I would be somewhat surprised if there is one. But it, but I haven't studied it, so I can't say for sure. But but it, but if it is true that over the entire 200 and some year history of our country, right, um, that all these governors who possess the same pardon power and nobody has ever attempted to direct it to themselves. Um, that is further historical evidence in support of the view that that is not a legitimate understanding of the power. Um, you know, it's one of these classic things with the constitution where there's, there's a provision in the constitution which seems on its face pretty clear and operates more or less smoothly for a long time, the president has the exclusive power to grant pardons and that power is his and his alone. Um, until one time, one day, a president tries to do it in a way that nobody had ever thought to do it before. And then you're like, okay, well, maybe the words are not as clear as we thought. We have to figure out, we have to engage in the interpretive reasoning and historical research to figure out whether we think the proper understanding of that power includes a limitation 
that is that you cannot use it against you use it to benefit yourself. Um, and, and I don't know how the courts would rule on that. I think there would be strong arguments on both sides for sure. Um, I think Trump for sure cannot reliably count on the courts upholding his self-pardon. And so I'm sure he's been briefed on that. And so he knows it's not a perfect get out of jail free card because nobody knows for sure if the courts will uphold it. And one of the things that is, uh, uh, you know, prevented uh, the idea of the self-pardon or even the pardoning of his children um, uh, is that many of the crimes also have uh, equal, uh, you know, state level crimes that he, he cannot pardon them for. We, we know Tish James, the Attorney General Tish James has uh, issued statement upon statement that they are under investigation for your uh, laws for uh, several different things. But since the uh, uh, the insurrection happened on federal property, right? I mean, it, it started on the mall and it, it, it continued on to the Capitol. It was in DC proper, which is federal property. Would state law not uh, cover uh, that, uh, those actions? Or would, since the actions were taking place against citizens of other states, namely the members of Congress and, uh, um, you know, would, would there be applicable state laws that you would know of? I, I know I'm throwing this out there as a, who knows, but. Yeah, yeah, not that I know of. I mean, it, the initial indications, right, are that the federal prosecutor in Washington, D.C., right, is is heading up the investigations in, into the events of January 6th. And um, I'm not aware of any efforts to initiate similar state prosecutions. Um, it seems pretty clearly to be in the federal wheelhouse there, right? The <laughs> insurrection in, in our nation's capital. Um, but as you mentioned, there are multiple additional ongoing state prosecutions, particularly here in New York uh, against Trump and, and various associates, which he cannot pardon himself for, right? And of course, part of the dynamic going on here, as is the case with um, many other countries that have had authoritarian leaders where you're trying to transition back to a more regular democratic government, right? The authoritarian leader is desperate to hold on to power because they face legal jeopardy when they lose that hold on power, right? If you have gained, if you know, if you are in a, a war-torn country and you've engaged in human rights abuses, right? And you're gonna get prosecuted in international court, then you're desperate to hold on to the powers of that presidency because that's what's protecting you. So Trump, we know, faces extensive legal jeopardy and extensive financial jeopardy, right? I mean, he's hundreds of millions of dollars in debt. Um, and he just got kicked off Twitter, which severely impacts his ability to monetize, right, his post-presidency. Um, and so, you know, reports from last night in the White House are that he is unhappy, right? He is kind of freaking out that he has now been kicked off Twitter, right? And and that is partly about his ability to raise money, right? Um, and so he's he's been desperate to hold on to power, right? And it's not working. It's not going to work. Joe Biden's going to get inaugurated on at noon on the 20th. Um, but Trump has been increasingly desperate. And, uh, you know, I mean, some there's so many disturbing aspects of what happened on Wednesday. But, you know, the reports that indicate that Trump was watching the riots on TV 
and reacting gleefully. He was excited about what was happening. And he was dumbfounded that the other people around him in the White House weren't sharing his reaction, right? Like he was like, this is what we wanted to happen. We're disrupting the vote count. This is great. And everybody around him was horrified and, and he couldn't understand it, right? I mean, so that's the president we're dealing with at the moment. Yeah. Well, I mean, and there was a video released of Don Jr. at the rally, uh, and they were behind the scenes, and, and Trump is watching the the, the the TV monitors with his uh, daughter, and it's unclear from the TV monitors whether he's watching the rally itself or the, the beginnings of the march towards the Capitol. Um, and now there are reports coming out that there was coordination between the groups yeah that were holding the rally in the White House for planning the march on the Capitol after the president spoke. And that to me shows intention because it, you know he set this fire, uh, you know, this unruly mob uh, towards the Capitol. And I know, I guess a, a defense would be like, he didn't really know that they were gonna go there. Although he said in his, his, um, his speech uh, to the rally, uh, march to the Capitol, make your voices heard, be strong, which is what the protesters were chanting as they were they were coming up the steps and going past barricade after barricade. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it does, I think we're gonna find out, we definitely need investigations because right. we're, we're gonna find out a much greater level of uh, uh, coordination. We usually always do in these kids, right? right? Right. There's also all of the questions about, you know, whether the Capitol Police, whether their preparations were intentionally sabotaged, right? I mean, no, right? No, just just standard methods of crowd control, right? Police officers on horseback, dogs, right? I mean, none of that was in place. Um, in inadequate physical barriers surrounding the Capitol, um, uh, the, the delays and refusals of, to authorize the National Guard to step in to help. I mean, we know that Trump purged the top leadership of the Pentagon in December, right? <coughs> we know that what was it like a week or so ago, every living former defense secretary signed an op-ed um, uh, uh, um, insisting that the US military has no role to play, right? In, in the transition of power, right? So I think it is likely to come to light that there are many, many, many more aspects of this where um, uh, uh, Trump was um, uh, involved in attempting to disrupt the peaceful transition of power. Um, and so that is disturbing to say the least, right? I mean, Fiona Hill, who's one of the leading Russia experts in the country, right? And was one of the star witnesses in the impeachment hearings last time around, right? Fiona Hill had a statement this week saying, right? It was clearly an attempted coup, right? He wanted the US military to be involved with this and he was unable to get them to do it um, uh, in part because of that letter from all the former defense secretaries um, and the, 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 the mob was the next best choice. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's what we're facing. And so for sure, more is gonna come to light. I mean, right, there's clear video evidence. There's clear video evidence that some members of the Capitol Police were risking their own lives to protect the members of Congress, for sure. But there's also clear video evidence of other members of the Capitol Police openly inviting um, uh, the, the mob into the Capitol, right? And so that, that we need to get to the bottom of that, obviously, and, and, and whether and how much Trump was directly involved in those 
plans. Yeah, and I, I got to tell you, the reports that have come out about uh, the DC mayor begging for the National Guard to be uh, enacted and that the Maryland governor saying he wanted to send the National Guard and couldn't get authorization for hours upon hours. There is no better, uh, uh, <laughs> there is no better argument for DC statehood now right. than that right there, where you have a corrupt federal government that has not protected the citizens of DC because of a madman in the White House that wanted this mob attack and refused to allow the National Guard to act. Um, the you know the D, you know DC statehood got a big jolt in the arm with the election of uh, you know in Georgia, but I think it got another big jolt in the arm on Wednesday as well. Sure. So, but so I guess we should transition you know from the dark wednesday that we just talked you know talked about but to the elations of uh um two improbable senate wins in georgia uh that have now given with the with the seating of vice president kamala harris uh democrats control of the senate though a razor thin 50 50 margin although lisa murkowski has made noise that she might at least leave the Republican Party, maybe not come from the Democratic Party, but maybe she'll caucus with the Democrats. Um, what does this mean uh, for the courts in general? You know, not just SCOTUS, but, you know, the, the lower benches as well. Yeah, so just first off, just like hats off to Reverend Warnock and to John Ossoff and to, you know, all of the tireless activists, black and, black and brown activists in particular in Georgia, who've worked so hard for this. And it's just infuriating that this is not like front page news all week, right? I mean, just that the amazing, amazing victory um, to flip these two seats. Um, and it's, it, it's gonna have huge implications going forward, right? Um, uh, there's a lot of questions about how exactly things will play out, but it has immediate implications for the Biden administration's ability to appoint people to both executive and judicial offices and have those uh, confirmations proceed smoothly, right? Because um, the, the filibuster is no longer in place for presidential appointments. Um, and so uh, even with a single vote majority, right? Uh, uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and even the moderate Democrats in the Senate are all gonna vote to confirm Biden's nominees um, and so his cabinet secretaries, his attorney general, and all of his judicial nominees um, can now get a smooth um, hearing. And so uh, just a couple initial points uh, about what this means for the courts, right? So, um, so first off, um, uh, the Biden administration, even before the Georgia victories, was sending strong signals. I mean, the Biden transition team uh, was sending strong signals about its attention uh, that it's planning to devote to judicial nominations, right? They had put a message out to um, uh, Senate Democrats saying we want recommendations for judges. We want them fast. We want them diverse. We want them to be to show racial and gender diversity, but also diversity in terms of pro professional background. Their request said explicitly, we want public defenders. We want legal aid lawyers. We want labor lawyers. Right. And so this is we want civil rights lawyers. 
So this is huge, right? Because under our last two Democratic presidents, both Bill Clinton and Barack Obama um, did a great job with diversifying the federal bench, right? They, uh, they appointed lots of judges of color, lots of female judges, um, but they really stuck pretty close to a traditional playbook where it's mostly kind of corporate lawyers, like A-list, like Ivy League, and then like corporate law practice. Um, that was the primary professional background they were drawing from. Um, and prosecutors, right? Corporate lawyers and prosecutors. And there's no reason why public defenders and civil rights lawyers are not just as qualified to be federal judges. And, and so that is a really good early signal. Second thing that's happened that we know of is um, they intentionally um, waited on nominating uh, or in saying who they were going to nominate for attorney general until after we had the Georgia results, right? And one of the reasons for that is that Merrick Garland, if he gets confirmed as attorney general, has to give up his life tenured seat on the DC Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the second most important court in the country. And if McConnell were still in charge of the Senate, then he'd try to hold that seat open, right? Um, so now that we have the Senate majority, um, uh, uh, President Biden can fill that seat, and the uh, very strong likelihood is that he'll nominate Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, who is an African American woman who is on the trial court in DC. Biden, as you know, during the campaign, promised that if elected, he would nominate the first African American woman to the Supreme Court. And there has been a recent pattern of choosing Supreme Court justices from the DC Circuit Court of Appeals, often after a pretty short time of service on the DC Circuit Court of Appeals. So this is now just speculation, but it, it's very easy to, to see this playing out. Garland gets confirmed as Attorney General. Judge Katanji Brown Jackson gets confirmed to his seat on the DC Circuit. Stephen Breyer retires at the end of the court's current term this summer and Biden nominates um, Judge Jackson to fill that seat. Right. So that doesn't do anything for us yet about um, rebalancing the Supreme Court um, because it's replacing one liberal Democrat with another one. Um, but it would be symbolically very important to have an African-American woman on the court. Um, and it does show that the Biden administration is putting a lot of attention on the issue of the courts, which they recognize is going to be a trouble spot for the coming years. And uh, yes, Justice Breyer. It's 82 years old. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I know there was some criticism of uh, Justice Ginsburg for staying on too long, that perhaps in 2012 she should have uh, stepped down or, or closer to 2016, you know, stepped down um, to allow Obama to uh, replace her. I don't buy that argument. I believe McConnell would have just held that open for four years, just like he held open the, the, uh, Ant Anthony Scalia seat for a year. I mean, you know, when you have a Republican in charge, a Republican like Mitch McConnell in charge of the Senate with no scruples, they would have easily reduced the number of on the court until they got a chance to put that in there. So I, I do think that, um, you know, we will see that. But do you believe expansion of the Supreme Court is, is dead or is it delayed? Uh, you know, it, it, where where do you think um, we we stand on the Supreme Court, and then we'll talk about the lower courts. Yeah, so I think it's delayed, right? So so I think I, I think we we have a narrowly divided Senate. We have an endless list of crises facing the Biden administration when it takes over, right? And um, we don't yet have the political support um, necessary 
to enact Supreme Court expansion, right? You, have, you would have to get every single Democrat in the Senate to vote for it, and that support is not yet there. And so where we stand with it, I think, is a couple things. One is there's aspects of rebalancing the courts that the administration can already act on, right? So, so there's, there's 40 vacancies on the federal courts right now, right? Um, they're going to move quickly to fill those, and they're going to be important civil rights lawyers and public defenders, not just corporate lawyers and prosecutors. Um, there's, um, there's longstanding calls for Democrats to expand the size of the lower courts, right, to create even more vacancies to fill. Um, and that, that is something that they could move forward relatively quickly on if they choose. With regard to the Supreme Court, um, it is not likely that the administration will proceed with any effort to expand it unless and until the court proves that it's going to be extraordinarily obstructionist to the Biden administration's agenda. And so the tricky part here is you want is, is timing, right? We, everybody, everybody who's a climate activist or a healthcare activist or an immigration activist or a gun safety activist right, they all know that we potentially have a short window of democratic control, and so they want action immediately. And the, and the tricky part is, right, is that if the court enacts, I mean, if Congress enacts, say, um, uh, DC statehood, right, which is clearly going to be high on the list of priorities, that will immediately get challenged in court, right? And I think the odds are reasonably high that the current Supreme Court would strike it down. Um, and so you want to do two things. You want to put provisions in all of those substantive bills that help make it more likely that the provision is going to survive judicial review, right? So for example, with DC statehood, is there any way to structure it such that the senators um, uh, get uh, put into office immediately, right? before the courts have a chance to enjoin the bill, because it is going to be harder for a Supreme Court to strike down a law that means kicking two U.S. senators out of office than it is to strike down a law that means, oh, next year, D.C. gets two senators, right? That's politically much easier for them to do. So you want to be really smart about structuring those bills in ways that makes it harder for the courts to enjoin them. But you also want to be ready to roll if it comes to the point where the court makes clear that it is just hell bent on obstructing the Biden administration's agenda, then you want to be have, have something in your pocket that you're ready to pull out pretty quickly to say, okay, well, we need to we need to restructure the Supreme Court. Um, uh, and, and how long do Democrats have control of both houses of Congress? I don't know. And how much can happen in two years? I don't know. And can they maintain control in the midterm elections? I don't know. Right. So there's a lot of there's a lot of unknowns. Uh, I, I do think it's very likely that the Roberts Court is going to obstruct sizable aspects of the Biden administration's agenda. So that part I think is coming, um, and it's a question of being prepared for it. You know, we, you know, we we talk about DC statehood in Puerto Rican state, you know, adding Puerto Rico and maybe some of the territories uh, in the statehood. What's the process of that? <laughs> I I got to be honest, I don't know. It's been since. 1940 something since Hawaii was added to our uh, to our union. So, what is the process for expanding uh, statehood? 
So the process for adding a new state is a simple majority vote in both houses of Congress, right? Uh, in in theory, current under current Senate rules, it would be subject to a filibuster um, uh, in the Senate. Um, uh, but if the Senate Senate could change those rules by simple majority vote, so you just need a simple majority vote to admit a new state. Um, there are a couple complications, however, um, with regard to Puerto Rico and other U.S. territories. The key principle is and should be self determination, right? And so there are many Puerto Ricans who support statehood, but there are also many Puerto Ricans who support. Um, an autonomous Puerto Rican nation, right? And there are other Puerto Ricans who support maintaining the status quo, right? So you have to, uh, uh, in those instances, you have to come up with a procedure that allows for the people of Puerto Rico themselves to weigh in. In DC, we know for sure that a massive supermajority of DC residents over a period of many decades has been lobbying for DC statehood. So we know for sure there's the public support for it. The complication with DC is that there is a provision in the original constitution which says that there shall be a national capital district that is um, set aside and outside of the existing states. And so the land was originally created by Maryland and Virginia ceding some of their land to allow the creation of that capital district. And um, conservatives have long argued, there was a DC statehood bill introduced during the Clinton administration in 1993 and conservatives argued then and they have argued ever since that you can't lawfully do it without a constitutional amendment because it conflicts with that provision saying that there has to be a national capital district set aside and outside the states. Um, that it, what, it, what it says is it's in the section of the constitution about congressional powers and it says Congress shall have exclusive control over a national capital district. And so if there's a DC, if there's a state government in charge of DC, Congress has, does not have exclusive control over that anymore. The bill tries to get around that by not eliminating the national capital district, but <laughs> reducing it just basically to the, just a couple acres, right? You know, it's like the White House and the mall and the Capitol building. It's like they make it as small as they can. It's like um, the Vatican in Italy, yeah, right? Yeah, right. It includes very, includes very few residents, right? There's very few residences in the boundaries, right? The bill text itself like marks out the specific boundaries with like street names and stuff. Um, and so, but, but conservatives will, conservative lawyers will clearly challenge that bill immediately upon its enactment. And, and they can probably figure out some way to get some conservative federal district judge somewhere to enjoin it right away. Um, and so that's the challenge, right? I mean, this is, this is a crucial reform. It's the right thing to do, right? DC residents, are not represented in our nation's legislature. It's 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 democratically illegitimate. They they demand it. It's obviously a majority black city. Um, uh, it would be a majority black state. It's bigger than two existing states. It has seven hundred thousand residents. It's bigger than Wyoming and Vermont, um, and it's one of the most feasible ways for Democrats to try to chip away at some of the structural inequalities that are built into the structure of the Senate. There is no easy way to get rid of equal representation of states in the Senate, which gives Wyoming's you know, 700,000 residents the same number of senators as California's 40 million or whatever. Um, there's, no, there's no easy way to get rid of that, but you can chip away at those structural imbalances by expanding the Senate. E e same principle applies to the House too. You could also expand the House in ways that would help chip away at some political inequalities. Um, and that can be done by simple majority vote, but the courts are going to be an obstacle. 
and it also would go to try to right balance the electoral college as well. Right, for sure. Right, that's a that's an that's an excellent excellent point. Um, but uh, you know, of course, I need to mention that uh, every break point that we've had along the way since November third has come about because of the electoral college. The electoral college did not exist, and we were uh, electing by popular vote. We wouldn't have the constant fights over individual state certifications. We wouldn't have the um, the fight over uh, you know uh, the accepting the electoral college results when, uh, when, when or trying to get electors to, to change that we saw in December. We wouldn't have had the fight over January sixth, which right. resulted in the the mob. I mean, if it was a simple uh, you know population you know vote uh, you know national popular vote. Each state would certify uh, their popular vote and uh, then transmit it to the Congress, which would need a calculator, and that would be it. It would be okay. over. And, you know. and, we, and we, we wouldn't have the insane two and a half month lame duck period, right? That where, where the president who gets voted out of office has two and a half months to wreak havoc. The reason there's such a long lame duck period is because they had to allow time for the electors to assemble and vote, and then for Congress to assemble and count those votes. Um, and it, it in hindsight, it is now we see that that creates a potential for, for mischief. Yeah, and I just think that we're going to have to, you know, um, obviously, we can't just start rewriting the Constitution, uh, but uh, enacting some of these uh, bills and starting to test uh, the waters on them is, is important because it'll also get the public mind. I mean, you know, part of Bill Clinton's attempt at getting healthcare reform in the 90s, even though it failed, <coughs> uh, made people understand that government had a role in healthcare. And, uh, and, 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 and then that made Obamacare um, possible <laughs> just, you know, uh, 18 years later or whatever it was, 16 years later. But then now, you know, Obamacare is, driving a discussion on Medicare for all, you know, it may not be right away. But, you know, these are the things that like failed attempts lead to uh, better legislation. So I, I, and I think putting DC statehood and, and Puerto Rican statehood before uh, this Congress very quickly is something that is going to need to be done. That's right. And no, so, so Indivisible, which is a national uh, grassroots group that I'm a member of, um, so they just came out this week with their calls for democracy reform to, to be the top, uh, the top priority, right, um, once, the, once Biden and the new Democratic senators are sworn in, right? I, I mean, obviously, we're facing so many crises, public health crisis, economic crisis, climate crisis, uh, policing and racial justice crisis. There's so much urgency for action. But the, the cycle, each of our last two Democratic presidents, right, had, had unified Democratic control for the first two years in office, and then they lost it. And the, the structural imbalances in our political system that favor the Republican Party are, are so severe, um, and the Republican Party's commitment to obstruction at all costs is so severe that we need we, this has to be the moment when we enact some structural democracy reforms that help break those cycles, right? Because we cannot fix public health and the economy and the climate and policing and racial justice and all of those other things. We can't fix them all in two years, right? And so we need to break the structural imbalances in the political system 
to make it a, a more level, we're not going to fix all of it, but to make it a less unequal playing field that makes it more likely that popular majorities can actually govern, right? I mean, Republicans have won the popular vote for president once in the past 32 years, right? And, and yet they have been in charge much of the time. And so we have to break those cycles. Um, and and DC statehood is a big part of that. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act is a big part of that. Um, HR1, which includes universal voter registration and gerrymandering reform and lots of other good stuff, campaign finance reform is a big part of that. The courts are gonna be obstacles on many of these fronts. Um, uh, and I think that the, the best solution to that for the moment is to be smart in how you write the bills, but also to push forward on as many possible fronts as you can, right? The courts are not gonna strike down all of these democracy reforms, right? If you enact 20 different democracy reforms, the Supreme Court is not gonna strike down all 20 of them. And if you can get some of them to stick, then that helps to adjust the structural inequalities in the system to, to make sure you have a chance to win an election again. And we're going to have to do something about the filibuster. I yeah. think that's a whole nother show, though. So we'll we'll yeah. save that for the next time you come on. But I mean, I do believe that, you know, there we're going to have to restructure the filibuster too. If we're going to enact these voting reforms, we're going to have to make voting rights legislation outside the filibuster the way reconciliation is outside the filibuster, and that can be done with a simple majority vote. The problem there is Senator Joe Manchin probably and a few others uh, and. And, but we'll have to name some airports after them or something. <laughs> but, that's right. And, and, and again, you're right. That's another show. But just, to, just one quick point is the Dems just have to force the issue, right? So they, they don't have the votes right now to abolish the filibuster, but they, they do have very strong support in the caucus for the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, right? And th so then Mitch McConnell's got to decide, am I going to lead a filibuster against the John Lewis Act? And I think he might try and might actually fail, right? And enough Republicans would jump ship to enact that bill. Um, if that doesn't happen, then it presents the question for Manchin, right? Manchin. And cinema and a few And cinema, right, yep. exactly. The Republicans are not letting us ha even have a vote on the John Lewis Act. What are you gonna do, right? And, and it's maybe not full filibuster repeal. It's maybe, as you say, carving voting rights out of it. Um, uh, and, and so the Dems just have to force the issue. Um, and, and I think, and, and I think there's going to be, you know, nobody knows, nobody has any idea right now how the Republican Party caucus is going to play out in this current Congress, right? They are currently at war with each other, right? Um, and, um, and when Trump is no longer in office, what is that going to look like? We don't know. Yeah. And, and what gerrymandering is going to do to the lines for the next, right. uh, the next uh, Congress as well, and will they decide they can wait it out for two years? But thank you, Tom, for coming on. As always, a wealth of information. Um, I wish we were talking in better circumstances than we are talking now, but I'm so glad that you're here to talk with me during this time because people like you and other voting rights advocates are why I think we will get through this period. So thank you so much for all of your work on everything and seeing why solidarity and just educating our, our youth, <laughs> you know, to, uh, to, you know, uh, you know, as well. So thank you. Back, back at you. Thanks for having me on. So next week, uh, I'll be uh, talking to Liza Abraham. You may remember that uh, she's the executive director of Dem Democratic Lawyers Council. Um, we postponed that interview because she was so busy working on Georgia. 
Um, and uh, so we're gonna be, uh, that's gonna be coming to you on Thursday. Of course, I'll be uh, back on Tuesday with Commissioner of the Cup in the car. Um, and next week is also gonna be a big week in the New York State Senate, uh, Democracy Week, uh, lots of bills that are gonna be passed. So we'll be talking about those uh, throughout the week. And I don't have my guests lined up for Sunday yet. So you'll have to stay tuned. We'll see what, who it is. Uh, but thank you very much to Tom and, and, and uh, you know, for being my guest today. Please remember that the virus is still out there. It is still, um, deaths topped 4,000 nationwide for the first time uh, during, this, uh, uh, during this crisis. So please wear a mask, please stay safe, distance yourself as much as possible, limit gatherings, the vaccine is on its way, and so is Joe Biden to make the vaccine distribution better. So please, uh, let's wait this out together. We got a dark winter ahead of us, but let's uh, look out for one another and get through. Thank you, bye-bye.